Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're having a chat about J. Robert Oppenheimer, often referred to as the father of the nuclear bomb, who, at time of recording has been uh, a bit of a focus of public attention once again with the release of the new film Oppenheimer. Now, I haven't seen the film yet, but that is not going to stop me from cashing in on all the clicks going Oppenheimer's way at the moment. Don't you bloody worry about it. Got to pump up those rookie numbers. So today we're going to talk about this bloke and his story, his career. Very interesting story it is too. Oppenheimer was a gifted scientist, gifted physicist, an unparalleled genius. Uh, even, o- even early on in his career, he showed great promise and did groundbreaking work that was well ahead of its time. But of course, he is most famous for his role in the Manhattan Project as the director of the Los Alamos Laboratory, where the world's very first nuclear weapons were developed and built. And Oppenheimer's tireless work in bringing nuclear weapons into this world and and overseeing the world's first ever nuclear explosion, this is what led to the nuclear bombing of Japan, the nuclear arms race between the US and the USSR throughout the Cold War and brought us to where we are today, living in a thoroughly nuclear society. And while nuclear stockpiles aren't what they were at the height of the Cold War, even if we don't feel like we're moments away from nuclear Armageddon like people might have previously. The fact of the matter is that we now have access to weapons that could, if fully deployed, completely destroy human civilization as we know it. And the basis of that fact is Oppenheimer and his work during the Manhattan Project, which turned nuclear weapons from a distant theoretical possibility to a very real and very terrible thing. Oppenheimer's career is fascinating. It's full of twists and turns, triumphs and tribulations, and a massive fall from grace at the end. And we're, today, we're going to get across all of it, from go to woe. And of course, it's a lot to get across, as ever. If you're a new listener, welcome. By all means, welcome. It really is great to have you along. And if you're an old listener, you know the drill. Strap yourselves in. It's time to get underway with the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer. Here we go. Going all the way back here. Going all the way back to the 22nd of April, 1904, to New York City in the United States, when J. Robert Oppenheimer was born. Now, what's the situation with the J, you might be wondering? It is an interesting question, and one that we don't actually have a concrete answer to. His birth certificate named him as Julius Robert Oppenheimer, and Julius was the first name of his dad. But both Oppenheimer himself and his brother Frank claimed that the J didn't actually stand for anything. From what I could tell, Oppenheimer went by Robert, not Julius or Jay or anything like that. Some of his students apparently called him Oppie, which is pretty good, although 
had he been Australian, we all would have called him bloody, I don't know, Chuffer or something, as we'll talk about in a bit. But look, whatever the J stood for, don't really know. Could have been Julius. I mean, that was that's what's on his birth certificate, at least. But uh, it seems that he went by Robert or Oppie for most of his life. Anyway, young Oppenheimer, he was born to Julius Seligman Oppenheimer, or probably actually Julius, um, given that his dad was born in Prussia before emigrating to the US, uh, and his wife, Ella. Now, Julius was a textile merchant while Ella was a painter, and they uh, they were very, very wealthy, very, very wealthy, uh, a pair of non-practicing Jews. Uh, Julius, as I say, he'd come over from Prussia with uh, very little other than the clothes on his back, and he built himself a, a quite a, a substantial fortune. You might be wondering, how much of a fortune? Well, I'll tell you this. They lived, right, the Oppenheimer family lived on one of New York's most exclusive streets, Riverside Drive, and they owned three original Van Gogh paintings. So, it's fair to say young Oppenheimer and his brother Frank had a very comfortable upbringing, attending and excelling in fancy schools. Oppenheimer was a brilliant student. He skipped several years of school, graduating just after turning 17, although he had to take a year off before going to university after becoming very unwell with colitis, which is a fancy doctor talk for have an ulcers up your clacker. Um, but he went off to warmer climates, warmer climates of the US uh, in the southwest, New Mexico to recover. Um, and down in New Mexico, he actually became very, very fond of the of the American southwest, something that would have important consequences later on in his career, as, as of course we'll get to. Anyway, 18 years old with the colitis behind him, uh, the ulcers all cleared up from his bum. Oppenheimer headed off to Harvard, where he studied chemistry, uh, as well as literature, mathematics, philosophy, and, bloody good on him, bit of history as well. Uh, He graduated with honours in 1925 and then headed off to Cambridge University for the next stage of his career as a scientist, although this stage didn't last very long. Uh, He headed off to Cambridge with a strong interest in experimental physics. Very exciting time for physics back then in the 20s, of course. Uh, Oppenheimer's all about it. But check this out. Over in Cambridge, when he applied to work in the famous Cavendish Laboratory with the legendary Ernest Rutherford, a letter of recommendation that was written by one of Oppenheimer's professors, Percy Bridgman, did him so dirty because Bridgman suggested to Rutherford that Oppenheimer might be better off as a theoretical physicist rather than an experimental one. And why? Because he was too clumsy to work in a lab, according to Bridgman. And so Rutherford, as a condition of accepting Oppenheimer to work with him as one of his students, made him take a basic lab course. Imagine the indignity. Oppenheimer, this gifted scientist from the United States, heading over to to the United Kingdom, over to Britain, and the first thing he does, have to do a basic, an elementary lab safety course. Here's a Bunsen burner. You'll remember them from high school. Don't put your hand in the flame. Um, Over here, these are the beakers. Don't drop them. They're made of glass. Very rakeable of you. Have you ever ever seen glass before there, Robert? Anyway, um, Oppenheimer worked away at Cambridge, and by by all accounts, he hated it there. He absolutely hated it. Didn't like working in a lab, and by his own admission, he was terrible at it, so it wasn't just uh, Bridgman throwing shade here. He didn't like it at all. And look, I'm not surprised he was no good at working in a lab. The bloke was a big, long, tall string bean of a fellow. He was all elbows and knees. He's probably knocking beakers up and down all over the lab, poor bugger. But rather more seriously than this, um, he wasn't a very happy bloke. He struggled with depression throughout his life. um, And this really came to the fore during his time in Cambridge when uh, it, it really did seem to have 
gotten the better of him for, for much of his time studying at the Cavendish Laboratory. And on top of this, he didn't look after himself physically either. He was gloomy, he was self-destructive, he went long periods without eating. He smoked like a chimney, that's why we'd call him chuffer in Australia, I reckon. Uh, he was actually a lifelong chain smoker, always had a pipe or a durry hanging out of his gob, but it actually became a, a trademark of his. Anyway... In, in 1926, he left Cambridge behind. He didn't, didn't stay there for very long at all. And he headed off instead to the University of Göttingen, right, south of Hanover in Germany, to study under the famous physicist Max Born. And there he had a much better time, much better time than in Cambridge. Secured himself a PhD in 1927. He's only 23 years old when he gets his PhD. Dr. Oppenheimer, thank you very much. And uh, his career is off to... Uh, well, professionally speaking, it's off to a good start. Personally speaking, in other ways, as I say, struggled with some personal issues, some emotional issues. But um, he also was just sometimes like so super irritating and difficult to work with. Um, there's no question that he was an unrivaled genius. But as we'll talk about a bit more later on, he really did rub some people the wrong way. But look, as far as his work goes, he threw himself into theoretical physics. Happy to be out of the lab. Uh, and did incredibly important pioneering work in the field, including on including on quantum physics, which um look, mate, look, I'm not even I'm not even gonna try to talk about it. I know I know what's in my wheelhouse and I know what isn't in my wheelhouse and quantum physics is so far away from my wheelhouse it might as well be on another bloody planet. The first wheelhouse that they build in Mars, right? The first time they build a wheelhouse on Mars, that's where I'll be. A long bloody way away from anything to do with quantum physics. I don't understand hide nor hair of it. I'm not going to try to get into it here. Um, out of interest, I did, I, I did actually look up to see, you know, maybe, maybe I could add something to the podcast about his early scientific work. So I looked up some of the stuff that he wrote, some of his most famous papers from this period in his career when he was working on quantum stuff, right? One of the uh, most famous papers he wrote was when he co-authored, co-authored with uh, Born, with Max Born, this bloke he was working with. Um, it outlined the Born-Oppenheimer approximation, obviously a very appropriate name, seeing, seeing as both of them were involved with this. It's his most cited paper outside of anything to do with the uh, the, the Manhattan Project. It's probably the thing he's most famous for. But um, here's what Wikipedia uh, tells us about the Born-Oppenheimer approximation. <clears throat> it is the assumption that the wave functions of atomic nuclei and electrons in a molecule can be treated separately. And, you know, here I was like an absolute idiot thinking that you can't separate nuclear motion from electronic motion when computing molecular waveforms. What an absolute turkey I feel like now after having read this, the Born-Oppenheimer approximation. I've learned a thing or two today. Anyway, Oppenheimer left Göttingen in 1927, headed back to his native USA, uh, landed himself a fellowship that was split between Harvard uh, and the California Institute of Technology or Caltech. But he didn't remain in the U.S. exclusively. During this time, he continued to travel through Europe for work, attending lectures and working alongside other scientific luminaries on both sides of the Atlantic. He was a very weird bloke, I will say this, a very weird bloke. Um, as he travelled and as he met people and collaborated with various colleagues, as I mentioned before, he tended to rub people the right... Well, he, he actually tended to rub people one or two ways, right? Either they thought he was an absolute genius with an impossibly weighty intellect... Or they thought he was an overblown and pretentious wanker. And look, maybe he was both. But there is no doubt that he had a very distinct identity and reputation. He spoke six or seven languages. He seemed interested in absolutely everything and was one of those blokes who is just so intense, you don't really know how to deal with him. So you can you can imagine, right, 
there are going to be people who think he's great and there are going to be people who think he's got his head so far up his ass that he can see out his belly button. But anyway, ultimately, he landed an associate professorship at the University of California in Berkeley, although uh, his start there was actually delayed when he caught, of all things, tuberculosis, the poor bugger. I mentioned he didn't look after himself. His health wasn't great, and getting TB is the last thing you need, especially when he's sticking all these bloody durries in his helmet and munching away on them. Anyway, he ended up taking time off to recover at a ranch in New Mexico. Once again, he loved New Mexico, loved the desert in the southwest, and indeed he loved the ranch that he was staying in so much that he ended up buying it, and he renamed it. He named it Perro Caliente, which is Spanish for hot dog, which I thought was pretty good. But anyway, he recovered from the TB uh, and he got to work in Berkeley, uh, again, rubbing everyone one or two ways, mostly the right way, I have to say, although he did have his, he did have his detractors. And throughout the 1930s, he continued his pioneering and visionary work in physics. But we're going to whiz through the 1930s here without too much detail, because I know you want to get to the juicy stuff. So we'll talk briefly about three important aspects of Oppenheimer's life in the 30s. We'll talk about the political, the personal, and uh, because I'm told alliteration is important, the scientific. We'll, we'll start with the scientific uh, and we'll zoom through some of Oppenheimer's achievements in the world of physics and beyond. Uh, building on his career's origins with experimental and then theoretical physics, Oppenheimer got involved with all sorts of other areas as well uh, in physics and, and beyond. He did research uh, into astrophysics, theoretical astronomy, relativity, quantum theory, radioactivity, and of course, nuclear physics, which we will uh, naturally come back to. He wrote quite a number of scientific papers, which uh, which were dense and difficult to understand, even for scientists at the time. Sounds a bit like old mate Newton, episode 216, get across it. In any case, some of these papers included ideas that were well ahead of their time. For instance, he predicted the existence of the positron. I mean, boring, never, never heard of that. But what about black holes? Heard of them, black holes. They weren't properly described until the 1950s and 60s. But they were predicted to exist by a paper that Oppenheimer wrote in 1939 with his student Hartland Snyder. So this bloke knew his eggs, I tell you what, and he had a fair bloody few eggs to get to know. He was interested in just about everything, really. He threw himself very enthusiastically at all sorts of different scientific concepts, ideas and problems. And he drew a devoted following of students who absolutely idolised the bloke. They thought he hung the moon. Honestly, they bloody loved him. So that's it for him professionally. Oh, I just realised. I could have said professionally instead of bloody scientifically, but I've embarrassed myself. Anyway, we'll move on now and we'll talk about his political affairs because uh, this part of Oppenheimer's story is very interesting indeed. Oppenheimer was pretty politically disinterested throughout most of the 1920s, but had something of a political awakening into the 1930s. And I'll tell you this, Oppenheimer was an unapologetic lefty, so much so that he was largely considered to be a communist for much of the rest of his life. Now, now he never joined officially a communist party, but he definitely had far left views and opinions, and he was at least sympathetic to communist to communism uh, as an ideology, even if he never was an actual card carrying communist. And now, of course, these days, most people, particularly Americans, they hear the word communist and they immediately think evil. But I'll tell you this. Most of Oppenheimer's political activities in the 1930s actually reflect very well on him as much as he was later labelled an un-American communist, but 
Back then, in the 30s, he was an uncompromising progressivist, something that, as I say, later on would have him be branded a a dirty commie, but we'll come to that. Um, He was an anti-fascist who, I will say, put his money where his mouth was. He sent money to German scientists who were fleeing the Nazis. Uh, he, he sent money to anti-fascists fighting in the Spanish Civil War. He gave money to leftist causes up and down the United States. And when his parents died, he established graduate scholarships for Berkeley in his will with the considerable wealth that he had inherited. He attended workers' rallies and strikes in solidarity. He fundraised for refugees and leftist political groups and, generally speaking, was just a great big bleeding heart pinko socialist. So much so that the FBI even began to monitor his political activities in the 1940s before he joined the Manhattan Project and and afterwards. But we'll get to that. Hang on one second. Before we come to the Second World War and his work developing the bomb, let's talk about his personal life throughout the 1930s. The last thing I want to chat about here. Oppenheimer was, uh, he was mucking around with a few different women throughout his time and ended up marrying one of them, Catherine Poining, uh, who became Catherine Oppenheimer when she took Oppenheimer as her fourth husband. Now, she was a card-carrying communist, or she had been when she was younger anyway, and the two of them began their relationship with an affair uh, that ended up with her becoming pregnant. She left her third husband and married Oppenheimer instead. They remained together until he died. They had two kids together, although it doesn't seem like he was the most most faithful husband. Uh, He shagged at least one of his old flames while married to his wife uh, and then shagged one of his mate's wives later on down the road. So so he wasn't always the most... uh, admirable bloke when it came to his extracurricular bedroom activities. Anyway, his social circle was composed mainly of communists or communist sympathisers, fellow travellers as they're often called. And this wasn't uncommon amongst well-educated academics in the US in the 1930s. Communism wasn't a mainstream way of thinking, certainly, but it wasn't as reviled as it would become during the Cold War. When it comes to his family, uh, sadly, Oppenheimer's mum died in 1931 when he was in his, he's only in his late 20s, and then his dad died in 1937 when he was in his early 30s. So very sad to go through losing both your parents so early in life, but their deaths did make both him and his brother Frank very wealthy indeed. The two of them inherited millions in today's terms. So that was Oppenheimer in the 1930s. Brilliant scientist, a wealthy leftist, and a... uh, less than faithful husband. But that, none of that, is what would define his legacy, of course. What would shape not just our perspective of him as a, as a historical figure, as, as an important scientist, but also shape the course of human history? What would go on to affect the lives and cause the deaths of countless millions? What would do all of this for Oppenheimer was his involvement in the Manhattan Project, infamous for developing the world's first nuclear weapons. We've talked about the Manhattan Project before in episode 197, The History of Nuclear Weapons, get across it. But uh, we, can go over to, we can go over it again here with a bit more detail given to uh, Oppenheimer's specific role in it. Uh, in October 1941, before the United States had even, fu- even started fighting in the Second World War, President Franklin Roosevelt began to put the wheels in motion for the United States to develop nuclear weapons. Oppenheimer joined the project in May 1942 when one of his former lecturers at Harvard roped him in. Well, I say roped him in, he didn't really get roped in. Uh, not exactly the case. Oppenheimer was actually very keen to be brought on board. He saw it as a, as a, as a great scientific challenge here. He was tasked with researching nuclear uh, nuclear chain reactions and their application in uh, in creating a nuclear weapon. 
And he gave himself over to this task very enthusiastically indeed, as I say. He and other scientists worked away at the problem, working through immensely complicated calculations as they sought to solve how exactly a nuclear chain reaction could be used to build an atomic bomb. And at this stage, while he was playing an important role in the project, he wasn't in a position of high-profile leadership. He never had been. Uh, he was in charge of a group of scientists looking into chain reactions, but but that was it, which was just one of the many reasons that made his appointment as the head of what would become known as the Manhattan Project's weapons division all the more surprising. In September 1942, Oppenheimer was selected by General Leslie Groves, the director of the Manhattan Project, he also built the Pentagon, uh, to lead the project's highly secretive weapons lab. Not only did Oppenheimer have no real experience in project leadership or management, he was also very well known as a raging lefty with an open FBI file on him. So, not generally speaking the sort of person you would expect to be put in charge of such a sensitive political and military endeavour, but that's what happened. And I'll tell you why. Groves didn't make the choice lightly. He knew that Oppenheimer was, aside from being an absolute scientific genius, he knew that Oppenheimer was enormously knowledgeable on all sorts of topics and also extremely motivated and ambitious, which Groves believed would help to make sure the project was driven forward at all times. So once Oppenheimer received this appointment, he and Groves agreed that the project, which had started in Manhattan, New York, hence the name, would need a different location, a newer, larger and more isolated base of operations. And it's here that we come back to Oppenheimer's great love of New Mexico and the American Southwest, because this was what resulted in an area near the city of Santa Fe being selected, a great big arid mesa known as Los Alamos. There was a school out there at the time, a private ranch school for boys, sprawling great big buildings that served as the initial headquarters once the uh, Manhattan Project was moved out to the uh, to the New Mexico desert. And of course, it expanded from there. Ultimately, the, ultimately, the Manhattan Project would employ hundreds of thousands of people and thousands and thousands of scientists at this laboratory out in the middle of nowhere. But uh, I will say that aside from the school, people already lived there. People already lived in Los Alamos and they were unceremoniously turfed out after the US government compulsorily acquired the land through eminent domain. Um, and the local population was paid, as you might expect, an absolute pittance, pennies on the dollar, as little as $7 an acre. And why might you expect this, you may ask? Because the locals were overwhelmingly Hispanic. And we all know that, historically speaking, the United States government tends to be, um, how should we put this, somewhat selective when it comes to respecting land rights. Anyway, as the site at Los Alamos was being prepared, Oppenheimer went around handpicking a team of scientific luminaries, as he put it, to join the effort of unlocking the secrets of weaponized nuclear power. Initially, Oppenheimer and these scientists were to be inducted into the US Army as commissioned officers, but then Oppenheimer failed the Army Medical. So that didn't work, and a bunch of scientists that he called up weren't actually all that interested in, in joining the Army, as ready as they were to build a nuclear weapon. But with his team assembled and with his headquarters prepared, Oppenheimer began work with his team, work that would, as you know, bring about an 
irreversible change to human civilization. Oppenheimer's task was to harness the power of the atom and develop a working nuclear bomb that could be deployed in warfare by the US military. And the US weren't the only ones working on nukes, of course. As we talked about in episode 197, the first nuclear weapons program began in Britain. Tube alloys, it was called. But the British couldn't afford to keep the project up, and so it was rolled into the Manhattan Project. But the Nazis had a nuclear program. The the Soviets did too. It was a race to see who would be able to build the first bomb. And now, when it comes to all the technical scientific stuff i I once again direct your attention to episode 197 where we talk about fission and fusion gun type and implosion type weapons uranium and plutonium chain reactions and critical masses i don't want to i don't want to toot my horn too much but i actually i'm I'm quite proud of that episode I, i think i did a reasonable job of explaining how nukes work in layman's terms um which really is nothing short of a bloody miracle because not only are they enormously complicated, but I'm I'm also a bit of an idiot. But go and have a listen to that. You'll you'll learn a thing or two about nukes. But instead, here, right in this episode, we'll we'll talk about Oppenheimer specifically and his role as the director of the Los Alamos Laboratory. Um, he did, as I'm sure you can guess, a pretty bloody good job of it. Unquestionably, his mastery of the science involved was was absolute. His blistering genius meant that he was on top of every development that took place in Los Alamos. Um, And like any good leader, he was actually there in the trenches doing the hard yakka with the people that were under him. He was a spur to the flank of all the people he worked with, motivating them to get stuck into the problems and issues that they had to solve. Quite aside from the fact that he and his team were building one of the most terrifying devices in human history, it has to be said Oppenheimer ended up being Quite a successful project manager, which was never something that he had had any experience with. Even when it came to dealing with problems he'd never had to face before. Interpersonal issues between colleagues, cultural issues between scientists and soldiers, logistical issues that came with managing thousands and thousands of people. Oppenheimer did a far better job than you might expect. To give you a sense of the scale of this project, billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of people worked on the Manhattan Project, most of them never having any idea what they were actually working on. And while Oppenheimer wasn't in charge of that many people himself, he was still in charge of the Los Alamos Laboratory, the beating heart of the entire endeavour where thousands of scientists were working away. Anyway, Skipping past all the science, once again, episode 197 to hear about that. We can move now to 1945, when, after years of work, Oppenheimer and his team at Los Alamos had developed what they put forth as the first ever nuclear bomb. And on the 16th of July, 1945, this bomb was put to the test. Codenamed Trinity, this test resulted in the first ever nuclear explosion that the world had ever seen. And the test was a success. The bomb exploded with the force of 25 kilotons of TNT. Relatively small potatoes by the the standards of today's nukes, of course, but still, at the time, the biggest and most powerful human-made explosion ever to have taken place. A blinding flash of light, the overpowering roar of the explosion... Humanity had, for better or worse, entered the atomic age. Now, you might have heard the famous line that Oppenheimer is said to have uttered after the Trinity test. Now I am become death, 
destroyer of worlds. And you might also know that he didn't say this, not until a very long time after the Trinity test. In fact, uh, instead, the actual quote from immediately after the detonation came not from Oppenheimer, but from the director of the Trinity test, which uh, was rather less poetic, but certainly I would say more appropriate. Uh, Kenneth Bainbridge it was, who after the explosion said, now we're all sons of bitches. Very true, Kenneth, old son. But the uh, the destroyer of worlds uh, bit. This came from the uh, the Bhagavad Gita, a Hindu scripture that Oppenheimer was very interested in. Oppenheimer had a real thing for Hinduism. He was never a devoted follower of the religion or anything like that. But he learnt Sanskrit to read old Hindu texts in their original form and everything. And he was very very interested in 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 Hindu mysticism and all sorts of other stuff like that. And um, Oppenheimer raised the Destroyer of Worlds quote in a in a TV interview years after Trinity, talking about how the, the words of the Bhagavad Gita had entered his head as the world's first nuclear bomb went off. He knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. had been built, it worked, and the United States had become the world's first nuclear-capable nation. And of course, what this meant was, on the 26th of July, 1945, 10 days after the Trinity test, Japan was warned by the Allies that if they did not surrender, as the Nazis had, they would face, quote, prompt and utter destruction. And that is just what was brought upon the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki on the 6th and the 9th of August, respectively, when the United States dropped a nuclear weapon on each city. As many as 226,000 people lost their lives, the overwhelming majority of them civilians. And for those people, Oppenheimer really had become Death, as the chief architect of the most powerful weapon the world had ever seen. An indiscriminate killing machine capable of laying waste to entire cities. And here is where we come to a very interesting part of Oppenheimer's story. How he behaved in the wake of his project's success and the consequent deployment of the nukes that it created. At first, Oppenheimer's colleagues noticed how triumphant he was in the wake of the Manhattan Project's success. He was described as behaving like a prize-winning boxer, strutting around bathing in the adoration of approving crowds. He made a celebratory speech after the bombing of Hiroshima, talking about how he was disappointed that the bomb hadn't been ready in time to use on the Nazis. 
And so you might think that this bloke was a pretty gung-ho nuclear fanatic. The uranium fever had taken hold of him. Nuke the bastards back to the Stone Age, he says. But then he and a number of the scientists that he worked with began to express their displeasure with the United States and the Truman administration's decision to drop a second bomb on Japan in Nagasaki after the bombing of Hiroshima. And then, on the 17th of August, a week or so after Nagasaki, Oppenheimer personally travelled to Washington, D.C. and hand-delivered a letter to the Truman administration calling on them to ban nuclear weapons. And later on in October, he even met face-to-face with President Truman and in this meeting expressed his regret at having built the bomb in the first place. Oppenheimer said he felt he had blood on his hands. Now, Truman's response to this was to boot Oppenheimer out of the Oval Office and tell his staff that, quote, I don't want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again. So it looks like Kenneth Bainbridge really was right with what he said after Trinity. Anyway, Oppenheimer seems to have done a total 180 here. He spent years developing this weapon, knowing what he was making, knowing the damage it could do, bringing to the world a weapon of such great and terrible destructive potential that armed warfare would never be the same again. And now he's against it? He's had a change of heart? What, he didn't realise the consequences that his actions would have? I'm I'm all for people realising the error of their ways and, and for changing their minds, for growing and learning and improving as people, but this result hardly came out of left field for Oppenheimer. He was building the world's first nuclear weapon, and someone of his intellect couldn't possibly be unaware of the consequences that that would have. Obviously, it's good he realised the evil that he had unleashed on the world, but I am not going to give him too much credit here with this U-turn. The triumph to begin with, I understand, right? It doesn't come from a place of murderous malice, from glad-heartedness at having levelled a city. It comes from instead having a feeling of deep accomplishment, at having overcome one of the most difficult and complex problems in scientific history. Regardless of your opinions on nuclear weapons, you can't deny that they represent an incredible leap forward in human technology. But... This U-turn, once he realised his bomb was capable of killing people in the hundreds of thousands, once that actually happened, that's less understandable. I don't think it's possible for someone like Oppenheimer to be so absorbed in his work, so singularly focused on the discrete problems in front of him, to fail to realise the wider scope of what he was doing. He wasn't tricked or coerced into making the world's first nuke. He did it with enthusiasm and with fervour. And seemingly, it's only after 200,000 people died in Japan that he realised what he'd done? I don't know about that one. In any case, Oppenheimer resigned his position as the director of the Los Alamos lab in October 1945, the same month that he met Truman. And in the wake of the Second World War coming to an end, he took on a very different role in the world of nuclear weapons. In 1947, he became the director of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, back on the East Coast, and he moved away from weapons technology to instead tackle more theoretical scientific problems, back to his roots, in a way, as he worked and collaborated with other scientists on all sorts of stuff that that just sounds completely made up, Um, quantum electrodynamics, meson absorption, 
quantum field theory renormalization, you know, that sort of thing. But um but more importantly, he he became an outspoken anti-nuclear campaigner, which is just bizarre. The bloke who brought these weapons into the world was now their greatest attractor. He was often consulted by the media on the issue of nuclear weapons. And and it's this role that he played in the public eye that I want to talk about. He was made the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission's General Advisory Committee, a position that he used to lobby very strongly and very publicly for stringent restrictions on nuclear weapons. When the Soviets tested their first nuke in 1949 and the nuclear arms race began properly, Oppenheimer was once again a fervent opponent of the continued development of nukes. He was still a proponent of research and development into nuclear technology for scientific and civilian purposes, but this bloke spent the back half of his career railing against the very thing that he had brought into this world as he campaigned against nuclear weapons. As the chairman of the AEC's General Advisory Committee, he strongly opposed the development of fusion-based hydrogen bombs, which are much more powerful than the fission-based bombs that had already been detonated. He urged the US government to ban hydrogen-based thermonuclear weapons and, and try to get the Soviets to do the same. He foresaw the arms race that would come about if the US and the USSR entered into this pissing contest to see who could build a bigger bomb and, of course, Needless to say, he lost that particular fight. As we move into the 1950s, the development of thermonuclear weapons began in earnest, and Oppenheimer was very deliberately sidelined from things like the Atomic Energy Commission. He was he was just too much of a squeaky wheel with all of his very outspoken opposition, opposition to nuclear weapons in general. And it only got worse from there as Oppenheimer's fall from political grace began. The FBI took a renewed interest in Oppenheimer as anti-communist sentiment was whipped up throughout the post-war United States. Even while he was in charge in Los Alamos, the, the FBI kept Oppenheimer under close observation, going so far as opening his mail and tapping his phones. And now all those communists that he used to hang out with in the 30s, the fact that he was married to a former card-carrying communist... None of this was good for Oppenheimer, as the Red Scare took hold of the United States. In 1954, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the man who built the bomb for the United States, was subjected to a month-long security hearing by the US government when he refused to voluntarily relinquish his security clearance. After four weeks, his loyalty to the US was affirmed, and it was found that he had never disclosed nuclear secrets or anything like that, but all the same... His security clearance was revoked and his relationship with the US government was terminated. This sort of thing was rife back in the 1950s in the United States. Even a whiff of communist sympathy was enough to deep six your career in a period defined by McCarthyism, as it was known, named for US Senator Joseph McCarthy, who led anti-communist investigation and persecution. A lot of this investigation ended up being completely baseless for countless people, but it destroyed a lot of careers. A lot of collateral damage was done, some of it very deliberate for political purposes. And people still argue today as to whether Oppenheimer was a relatively innocent bystander brought down by the Red Scare or if he was a dirty, un-American commie bastard. But he definitely did have communist sympathies. There's no denying that. That's beyond doubt. He openly associated with communists, but His political downfall was, I think it's fair to say, it really was just that, political. 
as more and more scientists were forced to toe the line and unwaveringly support the US's warmongering ways. Oppenheimer named names, he dobbed in people that he knew to have communist sympathies just like himself, and I think had he not had his security clearance revoked, ultimately he would have been seen as a traitor, someone who sold out his colleagues. But in some ways, he he did go down with the ship. And Oppenheimer's fall from grace was, on a, on a broader level, emblematic of the shift that took place in the United States as science became an instrumental part of military affairs. The right wanted and expected scientists to support the military's efforts to develop and deploy high-tech destructive weapons, while the left opposed the weaponization of science and scientists. And Oppenheimer served as a very sharp lesson to any scientists who were there thinking about maybe letting their morals get in the way of building bigger and better bombs because that was really, for all intents and purposes, the end of his career as an illustrious scientist. Now, he did get on with things, you know, he enjoyed himself down in his beach house, bit of research, bit of writing here and there, occasionally giving, giving public lectures when they weren't cancelled by those who were too afraid to be associated with someone who was associated with communism. But um, his scientific output, his scientific research never went back to what it used to be. Oppenheimer only published a handful of papers after the war, although he did collaborate with some legendary scientists like Bertrand Russell and even Albert Einstein in continuing to warn the world about the dangers of scientific progress like that that had wrought the nuclear bomb. Progress that, of course, he was personally and actively responsible for, let's not forget that. But again, I suppose it is at least something that he changed his mind about it all in the end. Now, he did he did undergo a little bit of political redemption in, in the 1960s when President John F. Kennedy awarded him the Enrico Fermi Award, a very illustrious award given to scientists in the United States. Um, well, actually, uh, it, it, it was President Lyndon B. Johnson that actually gave him the award because Kennedy was assassinated before he could hand it over. But in any case, this did kind of bring Oppenheimer back into the fold. Not officially, he didn't get his security clearance back or anything like that. But with the worst of McCarthyism and the Red Scare behind him, Oppenheimer's image was at least a little bit rehabilitated in the 1960s. However, he didn't live very long to enjoy it. I mentioned before, Oppenheimer smoked like a chimney. He was, by all accounts, a proper chain smoker, never without a dart in his helmet. And this caught up with him in the end. In 1965, Oppenheimer was diagnosed with throat cancer and nothing, radiation, chemotherapy, even surgery, nothing was able to help him. He succumbed to the cancer on the 18th of February, 1967, at the age of 62, dying in his home in Princeton. And hundreds of the people that he had worked with, scientists, politicians, military personnel, they all attended his memorial before his remains were cremated and his ashes scattered near his beach house. And that was the end of J. Robert Oppenheimer, who left behind a scientific and political legacy that is as important as it is deeply complicated. Oppenheimer was a masterful scientific genius, an incredible teacher, a gifted researcher, someone with endless energy and drive for problem solving and an unabated ambition to prove himself. 
But as he worked tirelessly to bring nuclear weapons into this world, was he blind to the consequences of his creation? Did he remain willfully ignorant of the terrible way that he would change human history? Oppenheimer telling Truman that he felt he had blood on his hands was hardly performative. It was one of the things that cost him his career. And so I am inclined to believe that Oppenheimer did indeed have a genuine crisis of conscience in realising what he had done. But being unable to foresee it? No. I I don't believe that for a second. I don't think Oppenheimer could possibly have been ignorant of what he was doing. And I cannot hope to explain why he chose to or how he managed to ignore the realities of the post-nuclear world that he was bringing about. In any case, Oppenheimer changed the world forever. His genius harnessed to clearly delineate a turning point in human history, dividing the timeline of our civilization into two halves, pre- and post-nuclear. So in some ways, Oppenheimer was indeed a destroyer of worlds. The world that he destroyed was one that was free of nuclear weapons. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And I hope that, uh, you know, if you're heading out to see Oppenheimer this uh, this weekend, or maybe you've already seen it, I hope this episode helps to augment your enjoyment of the film. Um, I don't know how many creative licenses Christopher Nolan took with the story of Oppenheimer, but uh, historical dramas like that are usually filled with a little bit of, uh, well, a few adjustments here or there for the sake of the story. But hopefully the actual story of this bloke's career was uh, was something that was interesting for you to listen to. And I hope you'll stick around for more episodes. If this is your first one, first uh, first time you've listened to an episode of Half Earth History, so good to have you. Plenty more where that came from, over 200 more where that came from. In fact, um, some recommendations if you want to get stuck into some of the better ones. Episode 48, 1904 Olympic Marathon, fantastic. Um, episode 65, Tara, The Eating Machine. Uh, episode 139, History of the Toilet, if you want some real highbrow, half-assed history. Um, episode 181, have you heard of Caravaggio, the famous painter? Did you know that he liked to get drunk and start fights? So much you're going to learn. And of course, if you're, a, if you're an old listener, thanks for coming back for more nonsense every week. It's great to have you. Um, Halfassedhistory.net, of course, use the contact form to get in touch. I love hearing from listeners with, uh, with feedback. Uh, and of course, topic suggestions. Um, if you've got a timely topic suggestion like this one, don't hesitate. Send it in because I'd love to get across it. Um, and uh, if you want to buy some Half-Ass History merch, of course, available on TeePublic, follow the link uh, on the website there. And if you want to support the show, I really do so very much appreciate all the people. I had a couple of new patrons sign up this week as well. So thank you, everyone who's gone over to patreon.com, signed up, early access, ad-free listening, show notes, which are very useful as study guides as well, uh, and all sorts of other nonsense as well, all the burps and farts from the uncut episodes if you're into that sort of thing. But uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. If your mates are all sitting around chatting about Oppenheimer, you'll have a thing or two to tell them about uh, about the bloke as well now, having listened to this. And um, if they don't believe you, well, give them, the, give them a link to the... If they do believe you, give them a link to the episode. Get them to listen. Don't even have to listen to it. Just tell them to press play. Doesn't matter. Those numbers show up all the same. You can bloody have it on mute, on repeat. I don't care, mate. It's fine. Do whatever you want. Anyway, thanks for being part of the show this week. Hope to see you back here next week for more nonsense. Until then... 
of course, leaving you, as I do every week, with a question posed on Reddit. This one, about nuclear technology, a question that probably wasn't at the forefront of the scientists working away at Los Alamos, but still something that would be very interesting to figure out. It comes to us from Reddit, a polar machine who asks, if a corn silo was just the right distance away from a nuclear explosion, would it all turn into popcorn? Popcorn. 